0: Thank you, Megan. We are in the second week of a series that we started last week, and we are, we're calling it Mosaic. We're looking at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just asking the simple question, why did the writer write that? Why did John write John was the question that we asked last week. And that one was was really easy because John says in his gospel towards the end that he has um, written this so that we might believe that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing we would have life in his name. So we started with John because he was the easiest. He actually kind of gives us the thesis statement, but the rest of the gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have to ask, hey, what is the purpose of this book? Why was it written the way that it was? who was it targeted to and why is this unique perspective something that God through the power of the inspiration of his Holy Spirit has decided that we should have all these years later. So here we are now and we're going to be looking at Mark this morning because Mark was written from a very different perspective by a completely different person than John was. And so we're going to pray and then we're diving into Mark as Megan just read for us. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning, and we're asking the question, why did Mark write Mark? So I'm going to pray, and then we're jumping in. God, would you bless us as we look to your word this morning? Would you use your word to mold us and shape us and make us into the image of your son? Father, would you cause us to look at this passage this morning And be reminded that we are not called to anything but to serve you and to point others towards you. Lord, equip us to do that this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love a good story about somebody kind of working their way through an organization from the bottom to the top. I'm not much of an NBA fan and I'm really not a Miami Heat fan. However, their coach, Eric Spolstra, who has like, coached multiple NBA finals uh, appearances and things. Uh, he didn't start off as a coach. He didn't come from a great coaching pedigree, but rather he loved the sport and wanted to work for the Heat. And he got a job 20-some years ago as the video intern. He was the intern putting together clips of basketball games to show the players, hey, you got beat here. Hey, you played well here. And he started as an intern, eventually got a full-time salary, eventually became an assistant coach. And now here he is regarded as one of the best coaches in all of basketball, because he started as an intern and worked his way to the tippy top of his profession. Um, my, My Aunt Lynn, my dad's older sister, was a pretty highfalutin executive for most of my life. And she didn't get the gig because she had an MBA or because she had a similar role at a similar company. But she started in the mailroom at a company when, by all accounts, she should have been going back to college. And she said, no, I'm going to stay here and work in this mailroom. And the next thing you knew, she got one account and two accounts. And sooner or later, she had the you know fancy pants office with the views of Midtown Manhattan. She kept working her way all the way through and started in the mailroom and then became pretty important person in her company. This morning, we're talking about the book of Mark. And the reason that I kind of lead with those people working their way up is because last summer, about this same Sunday, last Sunday in July, we were also talking about Mark. And we were not painting him in a very positive light. If you weren't with us last summer, last year, we did an entire look through the book of Acts. We spent 31 weeks going through the 28 chapters of Acts. And in Acts 13, Mark, sometimes he's called John Mark, is introduced to us, but he is not painted in a very flattering light. Mark is an assistant to Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And once things get a little bit tough, once things get a little bit complicated, once the red carpet is not being rolled out for these missionaries, it gets tough. And so Mark says, yeah, I got some money. I'm going to get on the next ship and I'm going to go home. You guys have fun on your missionary journey. I am out of here. And he abandons the people that he had signed on to work and to serve with. A few chapters later, Barnabas and Paul, they're about to go out on their second um, missionary journey and they have a falling out. These two great leaders and servants in the early church and the falling out that they have is over whether or not Mark should be given a second chance. Barnabas says, absolutely. We should give him a second chance. And Paul says, nah, I'm good. I spent a summer with him. He abandoned us. We don't need that guy. Um, We'll find somebody else. And so Paul and Barnabas, this incredibly dynamic duo of missionaries, they split because of Mark. That's what we talked about last summer. But 20 years after that happens, Paul is in prison. He's about to be executed. And one of the last things that he asks for in the book of 2 Timothy is that Mark would be sent to him. He's like, hey, things are good between Mark and I now. He has proved himself useful In the ministry, Mark had worked his way from kind of inept volunteer intern to now someone who was being integral and useful in the ministry. He had kept serving. He had kept gaining usefulness. He had kept gaining credibility. And at the end of his life, Paul said, I need that guy to come and be with me. But Paul and Barnabas were not the only two heavy hitters in the New Testament that Mark was close with. Mark is thought by church historians to have served and learned under Peter in Jerusalem. Um, Most historians, most scholars uh, view the book of Mark as really kind of the gospel according to Peter's perspective. Yes, Mark is the one who wrote it. Most likely towards the end of Peter's life, he he wrote this down. Uh, Scholars believe that it was written in uh, Rome shortly before Peter was executed. But Mark is writing this down because he was serving Peter in his final days. There's one little snippet in the gospel of Mark. That is not from Peter's perspective. It is from Mark's perspective. And again, not the most flattering light. Uh, We're told this is after Jesus is being arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, we read, um, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus when they seized him. He fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's Mark. That is who scholars think, ah, There's a reason that this only shows up in this one gospel because there's only one person that knows this story. And it was the naked teenager running through the streets. Mark slips this little autobiographical tidbit into the gospel because tradition teaches us that um, the upper room where Jesus and the disciples had the last supper, the upper room where Jesus met with his disciples the first times after his resurrection that kind of became a central hub for the church as it was launching in Jerusalem actually belonged to Mark's mother. Mark had grown up around the disciples. His formative years were around Jesus followers and he followed Jesus and his disciples to Gethsemane and ended up running home for all the world to see. And the one little part of the gospel of Mark that is about him is that there. So Mark now, has written this gospel. He's gone from kind of teenage groupie, kind of hanging on the outskirts of Jesus and his followers to an, to an inept assistant and then eventually a useful minister. And now he has written the book of Mark. Mark was the first of the four gospels written. Most scholars believe, but there are some other pieces of Mark's story that we can put together just from contextual clues in, in the scriptures. Um, And it makes so much sense as to why Mark emphasized the things that he did in his gospel. He emphasized that Jesus came to serve and not to be served. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, our goal ought to be to serve and not to be served. And Mark learned this the hard way. Mark's family was one of means. Again, having... Having a banquet hall above your house was a luxury that most families living in one-room houses in Palestine would never dream of. And the upper room that Mark and his family owned was so large that they could regularly have 20, 30, some scholars say up to 60 people gathered in that space. This was a family of means. Um, and on top of that Barnabas, who was Mark's cousin when we read about him in Acts, he had a substantial amount of property that he was able to uh, allow the church to use the proceeds from. This was a family that had means, they had influence. And so Mark kind of assumed, hey, I'm going to be in charge one day because rich kids grow up to be in charge. And I am a rich kid, therefore I should probably grow up to be in charge. It was modeled for him. It's what he would have expected. But as his faith grew and matured, he was drawn to the fact that Jesus did not pursue power or status. Mark was drawn to the fact that, that Jesus laid down his power and his status to serve others. So the passage that we're looking at this morning comes in Mark chapter 10. And this is moments after Jesus for the third time has kind of gathered his disciples and told them that he was about to be executed. He gathers them and like, guys, listen, here's what's coming. And the first two times they like went on with the conversation, like nothing had happened. They didn't really pay attention. And so here for the third time, Jesus says, Gentlemen, we're getting closer to Jerusalem. In just a couple of weeks, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be executed. And here is how um, some of the disciples responded to Jesus making that announcement to them. Then, and in the Greek, it's just, it's, and then, this is an immediately after Jesus is done talking. And as soon as he is done saying, I'm about to be executed, um, <laughs> James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He said. So as soon as Jesus is finished talking about his impending death, his impending torture, his arrest, his execution, which is only a few weeks away at this point, James and John pull him aside and say, Jesus, we want to have a private conversation with you. Um, We got to ask you something. James and John, they're, they're brothers, they're fishermen. They're often mentioned with Peter and his brother Andrew. Peter, James, and John were the three disciples who were the closest with Jesus. Um, someday, I'm gonna go to heaven and I'm gonna say, Jesus, why'd you leave Andrew out, huh? Like, come on. But. So there's these two groups of brothers that were fishermen working together, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and three of the four get to be on the inner circle and Andrew gets left out, but that's okay. I'm not bitter about that. So these these guys are two of the three innermost circle disciples with Jesus. Jesus has just finished telling them that he's about to be executed and they pull him aside and they say, hey, Jesus, we want to have a conversation, just us and you. Um, Jesus had a, a funny history with these guys. When the, the first list of the disciples was given in Mark chapter three, this is what James, uh, this, I'm sorry, this is what Mark tells us. He says, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Bone Energies. Bone An- Energies. I, my, my Aramaic is way worse than my Greek, and my Greek isn't good. But so this is a neat little tidbit that Mark does. He includes the Aramaic when he's writing in Greek. So he says, he gave them the nickname Hang on, I practiced this like 12 times in the car this morning. Oh, whatever, bone uh, which means Sons of Thunder. By the way, Sons of Thunder was also a spinoff of Walker, Texas Ranger that did not last very long. It was about these two rangers that were sons of, of a preacher whose name was Thunder. It lasted like two episodes. It was bad. But these guys are called the Sons of Thunder, which would make you think, hey, Thunder must be a pretty cool nickname for your dad. It was not. It had nothing to do with their father Zebedee. Zebedee does not mean thunder, but when Jesus met these guys for the first time, he was like, whoa, you guys are intense. The two of you are like a thunderstorm. Um, I'm going to call you the sons of thunder. My favorite example of just how Um, extreme these two were is in Luke chapter nine, the disciples have just been sent out on their own for the very first time. Jesus sends out the disciples and about 60 other people that were the close followers of Jesus. And he kind of deputizes them. He's like, Hey, you have the power to do miracles. You have the power to do all these things to point people towards me. So the disciples have gone out and they're like, this is awesome. Like Jesus has enabled us to do these things to point people towards him. They come back. They're like, wow, Jesus, that was really cool. And Jesus is like, okay, well we got to keep going on to the next part of our journey. And so we need to find a place to stay tonight and they go to try and stay in this one village on the outskirts of Samaria. And this village is like, nah, Jesus, we're good. We don't, we don't want you guys to stay with us. We've heard of you. We don't want the attention. We don't want any of that. And so James and John, who just had their first taste of the power of the Holy spirit flowing through them. This is their response to Jesus. When they find out that they don't get to stay in the town they wanted to stay in. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. These guys were sons of thunder. They were intense. They took themselves very seriously. They took what they were doing for Jesus very seriously. So these two intense guys... They hear Jesus talk about his impending death and they pull him aside and they say, Jesus, we want to ask you a question. We want to ask you a favor, but we want you to say yes before we even ask. Can you do that for us, Jesus? And Jesus is like, no, guys, what, come on, what, what are you going to ask us? So Jesus says, you know, tell me what you're going to ask you thunderstorms. And this is what they say. Um, They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. It turns out that these guys, what they really want, what they're really after is power and glory. They say, Jesus, we know that you're about to be in charge. We know something big is coming. We don't understand all this death talk that you've been spouting, um, but we know that your kingdom is coming. And when it gets here, Like, we think we would be a really good, like, you know, vice president and secretary of state. Like, Jesus, we think we should be your number two and three. You can choose which one's which. That's okay. That's cool with us. Um, But we think, you know, don't tell Peter because he's the other inner circle guy. But we think that the two of us would be a really good number two and number three. Um, You should guarantee us right now that we are going to be your second and third in command. And Jesus who had rebuked them and kind of like hushed them publicly before this time is incredibly gracious and kind to them. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. In this discussion with James and John, Jesus describes the suffering on the cross that he was about to partake in as baptism. He says, this is something that is unique. It is spiritual. It's about to happen to me. And can you accept what's about to happen? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we can. Now, at this point, none of the disciples are really happy. None of them seem to understand what Jesus's mission is on earth at this point. They're they're confused about what he keeps saying. And remember, this conversation is happening right after Jesus has told them that he is about to die. This is the next breath conversation that he is having with them. And so when James and John say, oh, Jesus, we can handle anything you're about to handle. Just grant us the power and the authority that you'll have, and we'll be right there with you. And then finally, in verse 40, Jesus just straight up tells them no. He says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus says, look, you're going to eventually drink the cup I'm going to drink. James, uh, you're going to be executed. James was the first of the disciples who was martyred. John outlived the rest of the disciples, but he outlived everybody by being um, isolated. He was sent into exile on an island all by himself after he had been, you know, after they had tried to execute him multiple times and it just didn't take. They kept trying to kill him and trying to kill him and it didn't work. So they said, fine, go live on the island by yourself. And that's how John died. Both of these men drank from the cup of suffering that Jesus was talking about. But Jesus says, yeah, you're eventually going to go through some things, but my father's the one who is deciding who is sitting on the right and left. My father's deciding who is going to have the power and the glory. This passage illustrates Mark's intent in writing this gospel because he wanted to portray Jesus as the suffering servant. Jesus points out that the path he's going to take is one of suffering. Jesus wants his disciples to realize that it is sinful to desire not to take the path of suffering, but instead to pursue this path of power and glory. Like, James and John, I love you guys, but you're missing the point. This is not what I came to do. I didn't come to become more and more powerful. I came to suffer. I came to serve. And he gets into this um, a little bit more with all the disciples. So they go back to the rest of the group, right? And we're, we're told later on in the passage that this really was a private conversation. The rest of the group hears about it later. So they go back to the group, and naturally the rest of the disciples want to know what this little side meeting was about. Like, they're used to seeing... Peter, James, and John go off. But just James and John, like, Peter wasn't in that conversation. Like, what's, what's going on? What's with this secret meeting? Um, and so they tell him, like, what the conversation was. And as you can imagine, uh, the other disciples were not thrilled when they said, yeah, we just asked Jesus if we could outrank all of you guys eventually. It's cool. And the rest of the disciples were not thrilled with this. So it says, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Who knew what James and John were expecting um, or if they'd even thought this far ahead. But there, there is hostility between James and John and the other 10 very quickly when the other 10 find out what James and John have just said to Jesus. And so Jesus gathers the 12 and begins to calm them down. This is what he says. He says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Jesus huddles the disciples together and says, you guys just don't get it, do you? Do you think that my ministry is about nothing more than merely retreading the business as usual power plays of the rest of the world? Have I ever seen interested in a Roman-like power status or Roman-like privilege? Like, you guys have been with me as I've been sleeping outside with my head on a rock. Have I ever come across to you as though I was interested in achieving power for myself? Have I ever seemed interested in anything more than servanthood? I came not to serve, but rather, I'm sorry, I came not to be served, but rather to serve. And so if you want greatness in the economy that I'm creating, if you want greatness in the world as it will be when my kingdom comes, you better start grasping for the bottom rung of the ladder because there are no cushy jobs in my kingdom. If you want to be considered great, you're going to have to serve. He says, you know how those regarded as rulers exercise authority? And yes, the disciples knew that. They'd been under the burden of Roman leadership their entire lives. And they're like, yeah, Jesus, we know. And, and we get that as well, because we've seen people in positions of authority abuse authority. We've seen people in positions of authority take shortcuts or take kickbacks or whatever it may be. We've seen how power can corrupt people. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of power that my kingdom and my church is supposed to have. So the question that every generation of the church needs to ask of itself or ourself is why do we so often aim for precisely the thing that Jesus says we should not be aiming for as, as the church, why do we try to aim for power and influence as the church? Why do we try to say to the world around us? Hey, you need to follow our lead when Jesus says, no, no, it's not about power. It's not about authority. It is about serving. Jesus says, if you want the path to greatness, if you want the path uh, to greatness in the kingdom I'm creating, it begins with serving. And then Jesus gets right to the point, And Mark gets a single sentence that can explain why he wrote his gospel. Jesus says, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve others and to do so by giving his life as ransom for many. Mark's gospel identifies Jesus as the suffering servant. Mark identifies Jesus as one who suffers and one who serves as being central to his identity. Almost 20% of Mark's gospel is focused on Jesus's betrayal, his crucifixion, the resurrection. It's been said that Mark is really a passion account with a very long intro because the highlight of Mark's gospel is what Jesus went through, what Jesus suffered and how Jesus served. Jesus was obedient to the point of death and then rose from the dead. By doing so, he glorified God and became the ransom necessary to set people free from their sins. And Mark says, here's the point of my gospel. If you want to be great in God's economy." If you want to be great when it comes to following Jesus, it's real easy. Serve like Jesus served, loved like Jesus loved, and don't think about what you can do for yourself. It's kind of humorous to me that in John's gospel, John goes out of his way to kind of poke at Peter whenever he can. Whenever Peter stuck his foot in his mouth, which was a lot, Or when John and Peter were running together and John gets to the tomb first, John makes sure that we know that, that he was faster than the old guy. And here in the gospel, from Peter's perspective, we are given some insight that, you know, John, who wrote 1 John, the book of the Bible that love is talked about more than anywhere else. At one point, he missed the point as well. So if Peter could miss the point and if John could miss the point, we can miss the point sometimes as well. Following Jesus is not about what we can achieve, but it's about how we can serve. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that the, that the world's power dynamics were not the same as the kingdom of God's power dynamics. Mark wanted us, his readers, to understand Jesus's point. Serving others is the path to true greatness. And Jesus offered his own life as a model of becoming great by serving. I think that the reason that this message resonated with Mark so much, and the reason that this is emphasized in Mark more so than Matthew or Luke, which were written about the same time that Mark was, but the reason that this resonates so much is that he learned it firsthand. Mark, as a young man walked away from ministry when it was not easy, but he eventually learned that following Jesus meant embracing the cup that his followers must drink and serving others as a way of sor- of serving Jesus and pointing others towards him. This is so countercultural for us. When you look around the world today, clearly the more popular choice is to be served. Most vacation destinations don't try to lure us in by saying, hey, come cook your own meals, come clean your own room, right? That's not, That doesn't sound like a vacation to me. Most restaurants don't say, hey, if you come here, you can do your own dishes, huh? Huh? In the eyes of the world, the path to greatness clearly lies in being served more and more. But we can be assured that that's not how it works in Jesus' economy. Jesus, who could have demanded to be served everywhere he went, looked to serve others. And I think we could all point to different people that we know that had achieved. That status of, hey, everywhere they went, they're served. Everywhere they went, you know, people are looking to them. And yet they're not happy. And yet they're not fulfilled. And we could look to people who have given their life away, serving others that are more happy and more fulfilled than anyone else we know. The good news is, is that James and John eventually got it and they put it into practice. Like I said, James was the first disciple who was martyred. John lived well into his 90s. Um, serving Jesus and pointing others towards him. And every single one of us can be great in the way that they were eventually great because we can all serve. There is a place for each and every one of us to serve. And Jesus has given us the pathway to be regarded as great in his kingdom. And it's really easy service. The way that we are regarded as great is by being willing to serve others Following the example of Jesus causes us to serve others and serving others causes us to be regarded as great in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the son of man came not to serve or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way that we point others towards the ransom that is available to them the way we point others towards the salvation that Jesus has made free for them is by serving. And in serving, Jesus says, we become great. And that is why Mark wrote the book of Mark. Would you pray with me? Jesus bless us now. Bless us by causing us to see the need to serve And Father, bless us by causing us to see the opportunities all around us to serve. Father, help us to be known as a church that serves our community. Help us to be known as a church who when we see a need, we do something about it. Lord, we want to be great. Not because of influence or because of authority. But we want to be great because we are following our Savior. And serving Him and thus pointing others towards him so that they can experience the life that is available through him. Father, bless us now as we continue to worship, bless us as we give father, thank you for the ways that your church has been sustained and blessed recently. Father, thank you for the ways that your people have been sacrificial in the way that they have been giving to the mission of the church. Father, may we continue to serve in this way. Lord, bless us as we sing and as we worship. Bless us as we fellowship together after the service. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.